Our scripture passage today today comes from the Gospel of John, beginning uh, in chapter 6, verse 35. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except He who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The grass withers and the flower fades. You may be seated. As we come to God's word, we need his help for understanding. We need him to illuminate it to our hearts that we might be changed. So let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word for these many witnesses who've written down what Jesus said and did as your Spirit guided them. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit says today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've been in John chapter 6 now for a few weeks. I just want to give you a recap of where we're at so that we can understand a little bit of what's going on, especially if you've missed a week here or there. So beginning in John chapter 6, Jesus fed the 5,000 plus women and children miraculously with five loaves and two fish. The people had gone after him because they had seen or heard about the signs he was doing on the sick. Jesus has this great crowd following him and he has mercy on them. He feeds them and they want to make him their king. And Jesus pulls himself away. He hides on the mountain. His disciples go away. Jesus kind of flees the scene by walking across the Sea of Galilee without a boat. He's getting away from this crowd as much as he can, and he gets on the other side. The crowd has followed him across, and they've had this interchange uh, in our passage from last week where they wanted to see if Jesus was truly who he says he was. He was saying that people must believe in him. They were missing the point of the sign. That Jesus was the bread, that the bread wasn't really just about feeding 20,000 people, it was about pointing to something greater, and that something greater is he himself. 
And they asked him for a sign. After seeing the miracle, they said, well, what do you do that makes you better than Moses? Because Moses did bread from heaven, and you just did bread from earth. So Jesus responds to their unfaithfulness. And here we're kind of picking up the ongoing conversation they're having. Jesus does, once again, bring up Moses here. He is trying to double down on this message that he's not merely a subordinate to Moses or merely equal to Moses, or that anything Moses did was the final end-all, but that all of those things pointed to him and are culminated in what he is doing because he is doing the Father's will. This passage continues this image of Jesus being the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. Just the verse right before this, Jesus told him, the bread that comes down from heaven is going to make it so you'll never hunger again. And they said, give us this bread always. I told you last week, I'm pretty certain they still think he's going to bring manna like Moses did in the wilderness. So Jesus wants to make it clear here that he's not talking about mere earthly bread. Instead, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. As we've talked about Jesus being the bread of life, we want to stay here in these passages and not get too far ahead where Jesus is going to go ultimately. And we don't want to be too caught up back in the miracle and what Jesus had already done. But we want to focus in on these verses and what they really teach us about who Jesus is and the message he had for those people. And I think there's really one big theme here that he's really getting at. That's a question we often ask, a question that's debated throughout the ages, certainly, and among Christians today. And it's the question, this is the question, how does salvation work? How does salvation work? Jesus has had this crowd coming after him, and yet he seems to want to elude them. They seem to not fully understand And Jesus is continually repeating himself time and time again. And he begins to explain to them how it is that salvation truly works. So we have in these opening verses, beginning in verse 35, he says, Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Right? There's this very, very simple message. It's a simple formula. We come and we believe. In order for salvation to come to an individual, they must come to Jesus and they must believe who he is, what he says. Must trust in him alone. Notice there's no righteous deeds required to come to him. It's the same message that's painted throughout scripture. God calls out to Abraham and he gives him all of these promises. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you children, even though you're old. And not only are you going to have children, they're going to be a multitude of nations and kings are going to come from them. And we're told that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. How are we made righteous in God's sight? By coming and believing the word. It's simple. And yet it's not. Because Jesus says in the next verse, You have seen me, and yet you do not believe. 
You've seen me and yet you're not believed. These are people who are seeing the miracles firsthand. I mean, don't you ever think that your faith would be stronger if you lived at the time of Jesus and you got to see him raise Lazarus from the dead, turn water into wine, break bread and feed the multitudes? And yet there are many people here who are seeing what Jesus is doing. They've come for a variety of reasons. They've come, and yet they've been unable to truly believe. They don't understand what Jesus is getting at, or they refuse to acknowledge and accept what he's been saying to them. And so we have these categories. Those who come and believe, and those who come and don't believe. Certainly there's other categories. Those who never come. Those who come and believe and and leave? And that's part of what Jesus wants to get at here. How does the coming work? How does the believing work? How much responsibility do we have in this process? How can we have hope for those who seem far off? How do we have hope for these men who are standing before Jesus and not believing? Well, Jesus gives us some insight into how this is all happening behind the scenes. See, we live in a time with limited information and limited knowledge. We're limited in many ways, mostly by our own experience. We can only go off the data that we've received. And yet Jesus here is going to reveal to us a truth that shapes everything about our understanding of salvation. He says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What's the will of him who sent me? The will of him who sent me is that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is giving us a picture into the eternal plan of God. That God the Father, God the Son, have this agreement. The Father is drawing people. He has specific people that he is bringing into his kingdom. And in order to bring them into his kingdom, he has sent his Son. And it's not optional whether or not these people will come to the Son. It says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So the Father is able to draw his children to the Son. And as the Father draws them to the Son, Jesus promises that he will never cast them out. It's hard for us often to grasp the idea of God's will. Sometimes we think it's conditional on actions of other people, conditional on our own actions, our own faithfulness. And yet, God's will is so much greater than our own wills, because, see, our wills are restrained by our circumstances. I can't will myself into being a millionaire. I can't will myself to be at my house when I forget something. I'm constrained by time and space and my own power, but God is all-powerful, God exists throughout eternity. God is the one who is to create all that is going to happen. And so here it is with the work of salvation in his people. The Father's will 
must come to pass because his will is not restrained by a lack of power, by a lack of knowledge, by a lack of presence. All will come to me whom he calls, and all that come to him Christ will secure. So the Father brings and the Son secures. Jesus tells us he doesn't come to do his own will, but to do the will of the Father. This is all of what Jesus has come to do. To bring about the redemption that God has in plan. That God has set before the people that God has called to himself. Jesus is coming to secure. But we live in the here and now of circumstances. And it's hard for us to have a very clear picture of who the Father is drawing. And who has been secured by the Son. Some of these things are a bit, um, you know, meta. They're up here. And sometimes it's hard for us to see them on the ground. Jesus is making a point here that there are people that are coming to him and they're not believing. And maybe the ultimate truth in their problem is that the Father hasn't called them. But we don't just see that in this decreed way that, well, they've been written off. Instead, what we see it's this interplay between God's work and man's work. And that they're not separated from each other. That indeed God works through all circumstances, all of the secondary things that play out when you make a decision. God is at work in all of those things. But here we see that in a negative sense. These men, as they've been following Jesus time and time again, are coming up with excuses and excuses and excuses to not believe in what Jesus is saying. We're told in verse 41, the Jews grumbled and said, how can he say, I'm the bread that came down from heaven? Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can we believe this guy? We know that he's the son of Joseph and Mary. We know where his house is. I bought a table from his dad. And now he's saying he came down from heaven. I can't believe it. They've come to Jesus. They've heard his word, but they can't believe it. Even in the midst of seeing all of this miraculous sign after sign after sign. Jesus says, don't grumble among yourselves. He goes back to this idea of the Father, and he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day, as it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except him who, come, who is from God. He has seen the Father. Not only is it required that the Father draw people to the Son for their even desire to do so. Sometimes we think about God drawing us to his Son, and we think we want to do it. But a lot of times, God's drawing us to his Son is like dragging a child who's kicking and screaming after they don't get what they want. 
Just as the ones who God calls must come to him, so it is that no one can come to him unless God draws him. All of this to remind us that God is the one who is at work, drawing people, securing people, even hardening people who don't truly understand, who are unwilling to believe in Jesus. Jesus goes on to say in verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. We kind of have that bookend there. He began, I'm the bread of life. Here, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. They wanted him to prove that he was better than Moses. Moses, the type of the great patriarch who led the people of God, did this miraculous work as God's prophet and set up the priesthood for all of the Old Testament system. The one who brought the Ten Commandments down from the mountain. Jesus says, the bread they ate, they ate it and they died. The bread I am giving is far greater because the bread that Jesus gives is eternal life. The bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. That's going to be a very controversial statement in the next section. I do want to touch on it for a moment. The bread that Jesus gives to bring life to the world is his flesh. The way that Jesus is able to say that he will not lose any for whom the God, God the Father draws to him is because Jesus gives us life by giving up his own. Jesus gives us the bread of life by giving up his own life. We're told in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and on earth. Just before that section, we're told that God, before the foundations of the world, chose us in love to be predestined as sons in his kingdom. Throughout this plan of God's decree to call people to his son is also the means through which it will be secured. When Jesus says, those whom the Father has brought to me, I will not cast out, those can be words said in vain if there isn't a price to be paid. Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says this, Now you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, alienated, apart from God, not understanding, Doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. 
This is the imagery that Jesus is pointing to. Life comes through his death. We are being reconciled through the breaking of his flesh. By his death, Paul goes on, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is the good news that Jesus Christ has taken upon his flesh our sinfulness. That's what we confessed earlier, that we come to God needing forgiveness and we can only have it because of what Christ has done for us. And these promises that we will never be cast out are not just made in good faith, but are proven to us in the giving up of God's Son on the cross. I think this passage raises for us more questions than it does answers sometimes. I hope you wrestle with this idea. I don't want to tell you. I often tell people, it doesn't matter if you agree with me or your favorite theologian or your least favorite theologian. What matters is that we agree with what God has revealed about himself. And so if you are going to wrestle with some of these questions, we must wrestle with what Jesus has said in his word. But it has these application questions for us that I think are helpful to talk about for a moment. We might ask this question as those who have no doubt come, at least to hear. Hopefully we've come to Jesus. We are learning. We are hoping to understand him more. But we might ask this question, how do I know if the Father is drawing me? How do I know if the Father is drawing my kids? How do I know if the Father is drawing my neighbors? If this is true, that God is the one who draws people to his Son, how do I know? Especially for myself. There's a, there's a question here of assurance, right? Well, I don't know if the Father drew me. I don't know if uh, Jesus is going to not cast me away. I don't know if I fall into this, no one can come to me unless the Father draws me. Well, I want to tell you this passage answers that question quite clearly. Oftentimes we want to make it bigger than it needs to be. First, we're told that those whom the Father draws, they come. Have you come to Jesus? Are you drawn to understand who he is? Is there something about who Christ is that God is swelling up in us that causes us to come and to find out more? Are we being drawn towards him? Secondly, when we've come to Jesus, as we're coming to Jesus, as this process is happening, right? This isn't a one-time event, but an ongoing question we have throughout our lives, right? As we come to Jesus, are we believing? Not that we don't believe without objectivity, Inquiry, even having doubts along the way. But perhaps the most uh, important question here that we wrestle with in the Christian life is are we going to persevere? I think we all, if we've come to church in one way or another, have said that we've come to Jesus and we've believed. So the question about being drawn by the Father has a lot more to do with our perseverance. And sometimes we think about the idea of perseverance and it can cause us to get on this vicious cycle of performance. 
because perseverance is not merely a test of our momentary faithfulness. Those who the Father draws to the Son and the Son secures are not going to 100% pass the test every day, every moment. And so we can come up with doubts in our minds and say, ah, I've been acting like this, therefore God must not be calling me. Jesus must have cast me out because I just can't believe I would do something like that. That is not how we ought to understand perseverance. Instead, perseverance is the need for us to continually come back again and again. You read the gospel accounts, you read the history of the people of God, and it is a book of failures. A book of people who continue to deny Jesus. A book of people who continue to go towards idolatry instead of worshiping the true God. And yet, these are God's redeemed people and he is drawing them back again and again to himself. And so, perseverance is less about my momentary faithfulness. Instead, it is this. When we are confronted with our sin, maybe in a moment, maybe over a period of time, it will cause us to go one of two directions. It will cause us to go the direction of these people here, making excuses, unable to believe, further distancing themselves, in fact, becoming antagonistic towards the things that Jesus says and does. Or it'll draw us near to the Son, the one who in his flesh has borne our sins. We'll hear this great confession from Peter next week. causes us to come and to believe again and again. Until we're in the grave, our stories are not over. There are people who grow up in the church, go wayward, come back to the church, go wayward, come back to the church. Indeed, many of those people are children of God who he is calling back again and again. And so if we feel ourselves being wayward, if we feel our sin causing us to distance ourselves from Christ and his church, we ought not to harden our hearts, but instead turn and come again to Christ and believe. This is the message Jesus wants us to know. It gives us great comfort that those who seem far off, those who seem to have moved away, the Father may not be done with. And just as we are united to Christ in this death, this life-giving bread that he gives to us, so repeated time and time and time again throughout this passage, is that he will raise them up on the last day. I have a pastor and mentor friend, and he often said this, when we are in Christ, we can never say the word death without saying Resurrection. There might be a reason our church is called Resurrection. It is the great hope that even death itself cannot separate us from God's eternal plan for his people. And that as we look to Christ, the one who died and bore our sins and punishment, it looks like that is the opposite of life. And yet the great hope of the Christian faith is that he was raised from the dead. And so it is for his people that we will be united to him, not only in his death, taking upon his self our, our death, but that we take upon ourselves his resurrection life.
as we reflect on God's calling of ourselves and others to the Son, may we do so with great humility. May we have eyes to see those whom the Father is drawing near. May we take ourselves out of the driver's seat and understand that God is the one who is acting. May it cause us to love people the way he loves them and to have the perseverance and the ongoing forgiveness, the calling again and again, even to the last day. May we cling to the cross. It's the only place we can find life. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ being the bread of life. That in his death we find life. Help us to continually come to him and to believe. That we might persevere through hardship, through doubts, through uncertainties. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.